2: Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. I'm your host, Adrian Lawrence. And today I am joined by the editor for Insider's Voices of Color. It's a platform that amplifies underrepresented perspectives in news, entertainment, art, and culture. Thanks so much for joining us, Kenya Evelyn. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, Kenya, the Milwaukee box, I know they are jazzed and excited and hyped to have their first championship. It's been 50 years, it's a huge thing. But it seems like there's a lot underlying this story, especially given the city of Milwaukee. What additional kind of insight would you add to this this win?
0: Well, absolutely, I think what is fascinating for this city is one, it being hometown, shout out to Milwaukee. So congratulations to the Milwaukee Bucks. But it represents what can be for when we're not necessarily putting the focus on money and power and investing in smaller underrepresented communities and cities. Milwaukee is one of those medium market and NBA franchises that's easy to overlook. Folks didn't realize that we even had a original NBA championship that we won 50, almost 50 years to the day. Today, um, that we wanted earlier earlier this month. So it's essentially important to look at Milwaukee as this microcosm for the broader sense of what's happening in America right now. Milwaukee was supposed to host the Democratic National Convention last year and lost incredible amounts of money in that investment, but that in particular exacerbated uh, economic inequities among the race, among race races in Milwaukee and around, among uh, communities of color. And Milwaukee is, is one of the most segregated cities in America already. So knowing that there has been an unequal investment, an unequal amount of funding and buy-in from the city in addition to the Milwaukee Bucks investing in downtown areas that we see in East Coast Eastside areas. When you look at even where the Milwaukee Bucks play, when they're playing at Fiserv Arena, just a just a couple of miles or even a half mile up the block or up the hill are blocks upon blocks of destitute communities, abandoned boarded up houses and it speaks to the unequal investment that Black Milwaukeeans have been shouting from the rooftops in the city. And so now when there's this opportunity to buy into the city, buy into the city of Milwaukee and count this as a victory for the state of Wisconsin more broadly. Black Milwaukeeans are wanting to remind folks, this is a specifically a 414 victory. A 414 being the area code for Milwaukee, Wisconsin, this isn't a 262 victory. This isn't one of the suburbs from one of you know the same folks who any other time are disassociating themselves from Milwaukee. This is an opportunity to have real conversations about how to invest in the community and those who make up the majority of the city, communities of color and
2: how that investment can be long term. And I can hear that you are invested in the knowledge base of the city and the things that impact it. And you really hit me when you had said that Milwaukee's ranked as one of the most segregated metro areas in the nation and also one of the most politically polarized. Now that the spotlight is on Milwaukee having this NBA championship in its hands, how do you think that that could potentially impact the city moving forward?
0: Well, the Walkie Bucks organization being a a conglomerate of majority owners and also a black female minority owner have been forward thinking and been upfront in saying that they wanna invest in progressive initiatives throughout the city. Throughout southeastern Wisconsin and bringing back those dollars that people are investing into the team and by, by default bringing back into the city and to the communities that need them. And that's what local leaders have been calling for. But that's also what community leaders have been saying has been long overdue in the city and it's Shouldn't take a championship one that come that came 50 years after the first. Um, we don't necessarily receive the residual, the revenue of the Green Bay Packers located to more than two hours to our north. We're oftentimes overshadowed and the you know the the in the shadow of our our sisters in Chicago. So we don't necessarily get that uh, that buy in. We don't get the publicity and we don't get the added revenue that that brings. But now here's that opportunity. And instead of squandering that opportunity and continuing to invest and build up communities where folks aren't living and it is, is perpetuating and exacerbating a, what is the beginnings of gentrification in the city of Milwaukee. Let's invest those in the same communities in the north side of Milwaukee and the west side of, the, of Milwaukee. The same blocks that if I go every five, three or four years as someone who has moved away from Milwaukee in my adulthood looks exactly the same as it did when I was a child. Let's talk about investing and revitalizing all of Milwaukee instead of where the bucks
2: play. Yes, I think that that would be an extremely powerful thing, especially for those communities that have been there supporting the bucks and who are just. Members of the community who would like to see that their areas are receiving the funds that it deserves. And so I know that there has been a lot of talk in that area, uh, largely in part when it comes to police violence, because that's something that we have had on that national level as well as in Minneapolis in particular. And I know that the police, uh, that the bucks were touched by police violence back in 2018 when Milwaukee had a police taser against a player named Sterling Brown and they arrested him just because he had parked illegally in that handicap accessible spot. Now the Bucks really supported him, but on a larger scale had that impacted the city at all in terms of how it engaged with police and its citizens. Absolutely, and
0: even continuing that, we saw Milwaukee last year taking the lead during the NBA playoffs, during the bubble that was in Orlando. And just last year in in uh, reporting on black voting power within the city of Milwaukee. And and looking at those disparities, like we mentioned, one of not just one of the most racially segregated, but also one of the most politically divided. Uh, Milwaukee was at, at the front and center of these conversations. As just a couple of about 45 minutes south in Kenosha, we were having conversations Related to policing and protests there, and so the Milwaukee and players on the Bucks wanted to take a step forward, and they boycotted their game last year. They boycotted the NBA playoffs until the NBA could be a leading voice in having these conversations about policing reform in America, and that continued throughout our unprecedented 2020, where we were having a ra- you know racial unrest and this reckoning in America. The Milwaukee Bucks have been essentially at the forefront, with locally within the community and then within the league, in saying that. We shouldn't have a hands-off approach on this. Merely having Black Lives Matter on a T-shirt or taking a knee at a game is symbolic. But let's—what can we do within the communities? And so we saw initiatives even within locally where barbershops were taking the lead in educating folks about vaccines, about the COVID-19 pandemic, and resources available to them during the pandemic. That, especially in Milwaukee, which was an early hotspot for COVID-19, especially among Black communities in the city, it took a—it took—it created and was a benefit. In reaching the communities and having these conversations, that also led for community leaders to to invite members to express themselves about
2: what it is like in Milwaukee to be one of the more over-policed communities in this country. Yes, and that is something that we have to continue having these conversations and that we need to make sure we advocate for change. And it sounds like change is something that is definitely on the forefront for Milwaukee. And I know that when you work for the Guardian, you were covering black diasporas. And I know that the Bucks also have a number of players who represent black faces across the country and the globe. How is that having an impact on essentially how people see the NBA and its stars?
0: Well, that's another thing that fits Milwaukee perfectly. Many folks don't know that Milwaukee at one point was the most foreign city in America before, you know. It's being a predecessor to New York City, and at that time, of course, it was mainly European immigrants. Milwaukee has a large mm-hmm. Polish, Irish, Italian population, but that that legacy of welcoming uh, communities, new communities to Wisconsin and to southeastern Wisconsin, and the city more specifically, has always been there. Milwaukee has a large Hmong population. Milwaukee has a large East Ethiopian and Eritrean population on account of diversity visas and place refugee placements. But this has been a community that has said, "We will welcome." you. And that is the narrative that is the message that Milwaukee through the books have wanted to show. When you looked at nearly the estimated 65,000 fans who were out or about in the city on the night that we won the NBA finals, myself being one of them, you did not see the most segregated city in America. Yes, you likely saw the white Milwaukeeans or excuse me, white Wisconsinites who largely live on the outskirts of the city or in its more gentrified eastern parts. But you also saw a community that is part that is Milwaukee 365 or 7 when we're not having NBA finals. When it isn't Packer season with our neighbors to the north or our counterparts in Milwaukee Brewers, this you're seeing the very faces that make up Milwaukee and Milwaukee is a mostly community of color. And so that is an opportunity for the Milwaukee Bucks organization through their players, through welcoming players like what we saw with Giannis Antetokounmpo coming from Greece and many other players coming from abroad. This welcoming sense that this can be a part
2: of the NBA culture as well as just as much as it is a part of Milwaukee's culture. Yes, and it's supposed to be a reflection of American culture in terms of having this true melting pot or mixing salad, however they want to say it. And so being able to have that NBA championship be reflective of that is a very beautiful thing. And we only have a few minutes left now, but I'd love to talk about what you are doing now moving forward as I noticed a lot of the guests that you have been a reoccurring guest on TYT. So let's talk a little bit about what you are up to now. Please let us know what's coming down the pike for you. Yeah, so we're looking at with
0: insiders voices of color. We're going to be looking specifically at the state of black women. And of course, fittingly, we're having that conversation today as prominent athletes. Black women athletes in the Olympics have decided to take a step forward, prioritize their mental health with Simone Biles. And oftentimes the stigma that come with black women taking ownership and agency in the storytelling and leadership of their own lives. And we see that playing out not just in sports, we see that playing out in media. We see that playing out in politics and we. Want to further unpack that conversation and unpack, unpack what it looks like as a consequence or even uh, what's at stake when black women are leading the conversations about policies and initiatives that will impact us specifically and more largely the broader community. That is a powerful
2: thing. Can you please tell the viewers where they can find you?
0: Sure, on everything live from Kenya or you can also follow us at VOC insider for voices of color.
2: Excellent, thank you so much, Candy Avalon. Thank you for having me. Welcome into TYT's The Conversation, it's Adrienne Lawrence. And this time I have senior news editor at Insider. She manages stories and reporters who cover a diverse range of beats, including politics, communities of color and much else. Miss Katia Tubman, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, so it has been wild with COVID, especially with these new variants coming out, Delta variant, and also with a lot of lawmakers not necessarily looking to enforce mass mandates, particularly Governor Greg Abbott, saying that he's not going to impose another statewide mass mandate. How is this impacting people? Yeah,
1: incredibly so. Considering that the state is seeing a sharp rise in cases and hospitalizations, amid the Delta variant being ravaging through the states, people are not handling this well. There is a struggle right now that we're seeing, not only in states like Texas, but other red states where there's a pushback against mandates, against restrictions. And right now, it seems like there's either the people or the politics at stake here. And so in Texas, we see Greg Abbott, it's it's so reminiscent of 2020. Around March, we saw the lockdowns happening and then the pushback from Trump and other Republicans saying that reopening should be happening and we saw Greg Abbott take that route of being one of the people who pushed against staying open, shut down most of the state. But then as the economy took a nosedive, a lot of the conversation started changing. And we saw that reopening phases were starting. And then around the same time this year, just last year in July, Texas had seen a sharp rise, almost a major outbreak is what they called it at the time of COVID cases. And that pushed the governor to actually about face and go back to restrictions such as easing them, or going back a phase or two to make sure that people were safe. Now, this did not end well, of course. We saw that a lot of conservatives, even a handful of, of local uh Republican lawmakers, had pushed back and even entered lawsuits against the governor for these restrictions. And so we can expect that uh, there's a lesson to be learned on so many fronts, but that we can expect that the governor himself might be a little bit hesitant to repeat last year, whereas we could see a, a, some sort of restrictions, some sort of lockdowns. Some sort of mandate. At the same time, there will be a fierce backlash amongst this party, especially as we saw last year that happened around this time. And so that is what we're seeing. People are kind of in the throes of what will happen if the Delta variant gets any much worse than it is right now.
2: Yes, and it seems to be very much the problem Uh, in a lot of places. It's my understanding recently that there was a report that came out that essentially uh, around the area of Disney World, they're experiencing a spike in COVID cases. And a lot of these places that have opened up and that are exposing people, do you think that there's gonna possibly be a happy medium where some places will be able to stay open and others won't necessarily or that we're going to go back almost into that nationwide quarantine that impacted a lot of the nation?
1: All right, it will be really tough to see a nationwide quarantine happen again, especially with the pushback against so many states that are that are Republican and GOP led. I will say that I was at Disneyland and Disney World not so long ago, about a week or two, and it was really, really hard to keep a mask on, to keep your distance, because everyone is so excited to get out there and be outside of their homes. At the same time, we're seeing pushback from DeSantis to say that there will be no mask mandate, there will be no more restrictions, and there are many, many people who put him in a high approval ratings that say that he is looking out for the health of Floridians and that he's also looking out for the health of the state economy. And so we probably will not see any type of large scale quarantine happen. It will depend on how, sadly, how far worse can this Delta variant ravage states like Florida and like Texas.
2: All right, so clearly people prefer to play politics over just basic science. But in terms of the possibility worst case scenario in terms of getting people to act, do you think that we'd have to suffer basically having other countries lock us out permanently before we really get the message that we have to do what we need to do?
1: Well, other other countries are looking at the U.S. How is it that uh, a variant that had that had taken off in another country like India uh, is now seeing that the U.S. is it's out it's beating out uh, that spread, and we are having far more uh, um, far more cases, uh, far more faster transmission rates. Uh, I think other countries are paying attention and seeing how the U.S. is handling it. It might. It, who knows if it comes to the point where you the U.S. will have to be blocked out before it. it you know, sits down and hunkers down and figures out what to do about getting everyone on board, especially around vaccinations. Uh, that's that's also reminiscent inside of Florida right now. We're hearing from DeSantis, uh, the Republican governor there, saying vaccines help, vaccine saves lot save lives. At the same time, pushing against any mask wearing, any social uh, restrictions that might be coming uh, as recommendations from public health officials, from experts, from other politicians who worry about the safety of the population. Uh, so we're we're seeing that that struggle constantly happening, especially in these GOP led states where That's where the spikes were taking place. And that's where the constant struggle is being seen between, well, what will it take for us to really shut down? And will it take uh, pushing forward with vaccines? Or will it take seeing another nosedive in our economy to get there? Because right now, the US economy is rebounding and there's faith in that and there are a lot of people pushing for that. And so if there are any lockdown conversations on the table, they might be being pushed to the side.
2: Yeah, definitely as a capitalistic culture that we seem to readily enjoy in our nation, it definitely seems like capitalism is king uh, over the lives and the livelihood of others. So we're gonna see how that works. And as you're watching and covering a lot of the issues that are um, kind of collateral or almost tangential to COVID-19, what do you think is being missed the most that a lot of people aren't necessarily seeing, but it's clearly an offshoot of this pandemic? Right now what's
1: being missed is is the tracking and the data. The data isn't supporting a lot of the claims that are either, either being used by Democrats and Republicans to make either case for staying open, for boosting vaccinations for any other sides the data isn't there. We don't know how exactly how many people are in the crossover of either they have natural immunity which has been touted by Republican governors uh to how many of them are actually vaccinated. We don't know what a threshold is for herd immunity even though states like Texas are saying that we are almost there or we're so close. There is no data supporting that. That is where we're going to be we're going to start falling off. There was so much tracking in 2020 and a lot of it wasn't even done by local government or state governments. A lot of it was done by small organizations and groups and scientists and doctors and experts. Uh, Now that we've seen uh, reopenings happening at the start of the year, a lot of restrictions ease up. Uh, A lot of that data has been lagging behind. And if we don't know, if we don't catch up to what's truly happening, what's the full picture of what it looks like to have a COVID uh, variant ravaged communities throughout the country, if we don't have that true picture, we can't actually act effectively going forward. And we can only expect that it's going to get worse before we fully know what it looks like out there on a people level. And so that is what we're missing. And I think that's what people are turning towards. What is the information saying? What is the data saying? Whether you support it as a Democrat or Republican or someone on the left or the right or who is anti-vax or not. We don't have enough information right now and it seems like we're falling behind.
2: Yes, it definitely seems that in addition to having a capitalistic culture, we do seem to like to perpetuate ignorance, keeping people in the dark because they're easier to control. So that seems to be something that we are seeing with these numbers being fudged or not necessarily being whole and true. And so as we move forward into potentially 2022, what do you think is the potential most shocking thing that we could possibly see?
1: The the most shocking would get to the same rates of death uh, of cases that we saw in 2020. We are seeing records being set right now in certain states that we've already spoken about. Uh, but to to even get back to that number to get as high as we were as last year to see those kinds of, of hospitalization rates, to see hospitals struggling, to see nursing homes struggling, uh, to see young people uh, struggling too at the same time who aren't actually able to get vaccines and younger and younger people are getting uh, COVID. Uh, to even get back to that place that we were last year would be Would be heartbreaking almost uh, to go into 2022 and and beyond that. But right now, even looking at 2021, it it doesn't seem so hopeful for folks. And that's why I said the information having the data out there is going to help. Uh, And it's not going to be uh, along party lines, it's just gonna be about people and whether they're gonna be uh, in a healthy state come fall and then come next year.
2: Yes, and I would imagine having these kind of midterm elections will also be problematic in terms of people not necessarily wanting to acknowledge the problems that are ongoing. Uh, Yep, and that could be very, very detrimental. So uh, we only have about a few minutes left. Uh, Is there anything you wanna tout or to promote in any way that you'd like our viewers to keep an eye out for?
1: Yeah, I would say definitely keep an eye out for um, all the. We're doing a great job at Insider of tracking uh, COVID cases and reporting them as much as possible, as fast as possible. I would say keep an eye out for anyone and anywhere. Whatever dashboard you use, use. I would say look at them. Uh, keep the. Uh, ask your states. Ask your gov- local government. Uh, where can you get accurate information? Because that's what we're going to be needing going forward. And that's what everyday people are going to need to make the best decision for themselves. Because a lot of these states are saying that it's going to be on the individual, it's going to be personal responsibility. But you can't really fault people for taking full, full, full responsibility for their actions if they are not informed. And so I say that keep an eye out for the information wherever it is that you're, it's coming from. Uh, but always ask the question, who is it serving in certain perspectives? Uh, who is it helping? Who is it hurting? As you look for that kind of data.
2: Absolutely, that analytical framework, we need that from people. And can you please tell the viewers where they can find you?
1: Yeah, you can find me on insider.com, Insider News, on Twitter, we're, we're there. Uh, we're constantly sharing this information. Uh, you you can also find me at, at Katie Tubman on Twitter as well. And I'm happy to answer any questions from our, our readers, your viewers who might, who might even actually be thinking about what will 2021, the rest of 2021, look like? Where should I go for information? How can I make the best choices for myself and my community?
2: Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Katie Tubman, Senior News Editor at Insider. Thanks for joining us, Katie. Thank you.